and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, ideas and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this podcast is a two-headed affair. First up, I'm talking to David Sanger of the New York Times about the world according to Donald Trump. No one has spoken to Donald Trump more often than David Sanger about foreign policy issues. And he will tell us what he's managed to learn about what kind of American foreign policy and what kind of world order might emerge from a Trump presidency. And then we are going to look at the Middle East, at the new power couple that has been joined at the hip in Syria Syria for the last period of time, Iran and Russia. And I have two great experts who've just written a fantastic paper on the new power couple, Russia and Iran in the Middle East, Ellie Garenmeyer from our Middle East and North Africa program and Kadri League from our wider Europe program. So I'm in New York for, uh, well, just outside New York for some discussions about the future of transatlantic relations. And one topic on everyone's mind is what Donald Trump will mean, not just for the future of America, but for the transatlantic alliance. It's a topic about which there is a huge amount of speculation and very few people actually have got anywhere near Donald Trump, let alone inside his mind. But there is one person who has had two long interviews with Donald Trump and can probably uh, tell us more about the world according to Donald Trump than, than anybody else apart from the man himself. And that is David Sanger, who is a very distinguished uh, journalist for the New York Times, but also has written some of the, the greatest books on American foreign policy over the last few years, a whole series of books which have illuminated not just the, the scale of the challenges, but also the profound changes in the way that foreign policy has been prosecuted uh, from, from Washington. So, David, you've had two lengthy interviews with, with Donald Trump. Coming out of them, what do you think the world, according to Trump, looks like? Well, thanks for having me, Mark. Um, I think the main thing to think about Donald Trump is that his view of the world is extraordinarily transactional. And that's not surprising, given the fact that his major activities internationally have been to be trying to buy or sell properties abroad, uh, or license his name and brand abroad, or to administer the Miss Universe contest. Um, The difficulty is that those kinds of transactions in the business world don't actually prepare you very much for alliance politics. And so when you discuss a question with him, should the uh, United States continue to be a member of NATO, the answer was it depends on the contributions of the other countries and that we should look at our trade deficits with each of those other countries. Now, you and I come out of a world of security conferences like the one we've been at this weekend where one thinks that alliances have many other purposes, to share values, to create a security net, to be an investment for a rainy day. When wars come up, life turns difficult. When you have a mission, whether it is dealing with China or dealing with Russia or just dealing with uh, the politics of Brexit. I think Mr. Trump's view is quite different. It's much more bilateral. 
and it's much more transactional. And that means that he just has not been steeped yet in what alliances are all about. But he may not want to be. I mean, his view is that the more we get wrapped into these large organizations, the more it dilutes American interest. And the core of America first, that phraseology, is to put America first back as the number one issue in American foreign policy. So one of the, the really fascinating things about the interviews which you did with him is that it, it looks like he, he fundamentally believes that the global order is uh, put together in a way that is against America's interests rather than uh, an amplifier of, of American interests. Uh, he, he does, and you know there are elements of his critique that while it's very easy for American elites, Europeans, others to dismiss, you hear echoes of in more mainstream conversation. Let me give you some examples. At the end of Bob Gates's time as Secretary of Defense, a man who had been Secretary of Defense both for uh, George Bush and Barack Obama, he gave a speech in Europe, one of his last speeches the as Secretary. Demilitarization of Europe. Well, it, the speech was partly about the demilitarization, but it had a warning in it. And the warning was there is a whole generation of Americans coming up who have no memory of the Cold War. I teach undergraduates who have no memory of 9-11. They were three years old <laughs> at the time. Okay, So how could they have memory of the Cold War, right? Um, and that they don't understand the role that NATO played during the Cold War. And frankly, if NATO countries don't step up to invest as much in their own defense as the United States is, there's going to be a loss of support. Barack Obama has said something similar when he has talked about free riders. What Donald Trump does is takes it the next step and says, if this doesn't reverse itself, no longer count on us. That's something you've never heard from Gates, from Obama, from the old traditional Republican leadership. And that's what I think people have found so jarring. So that's... Uh, something which has profound implications for, for allies and for the security orders in different parts of the world. But his, revi his revisionism seems to go even further. I mean, he questions also the World Trade Organization and, and the kind of trade deals which different countries have with the, with the U.S. I mean, do you think that there might be some echoes of, of George Bush, who was seen as a kind of source of global instability because he was seen as, 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 as quite revisionist when it came to the, the international order? declaring Kyoto dead, I mean, going through and uh, putting a lot of people's uh, noses out of joints, particularly Europeans, because of his suspicion of multilateralism and of the, the, the institutions which underpinned the, uh, the global order. I think there's one big difference. I was White House correspondent for the Times during the, most of the Bush administration, and that while Bush was willing to walk away from the ABM treaty and while he had members of his administration that said, you know, the United Nations would be a lot better if he cut 10 stories out of yeah. the building and so forth. The fact that he got made UN ambassador was, was right. quite, uh, <laughs> was, right. it was quite no notable. <laughs> but despite that, when Bush entered the war in Afghanistan and then in Iraq, it was very important to him to have at least the patina of an alliance effort. He used to call it... Micronesia and other countries. Well, important yeah, but also Germany and Japan sure. and, and others. And he called it a coalition of the willing. Yeah. 
Now, eventually, that coalition became the coalition of the leaving, and they, they picked up and went, went out by and large. But for a while, you know, Germany, Italy, other major European countries all had their responsibilities, and particularly in Afghanistan. Now, I think for Mr. Trump, he's happy if um, other countries come along on American terms, but I think the, the essence of America first is... A, we don't necessarily need to build that, and B, even if we do build that, uh, they'll either do it on American terms or the U.S. will go off on its own. Now, people say a lot of things in campaigns that don't turn out to be how they govern. Bill Clinton campaigned against NAFTA and signed it and then brought the Chinese into the WTO. WTO, Right. Uh, there are other... And George uh, Bush didn't want to be an ugly American. That's right. And George Bush talked about actually not engaging in nation building yeah. during the 2000 campaign and in interviews I did with him down at his ranch 10 days before he was inaugurated, and he ended up becoming a nation builder. And in fact, saying that building up new democracies was the core mission of the United States by the second inaugural address. So... You know, one thing I tell my my European, my Asian friends is in the last 50 or 60 days of a presidential campaign, buy yourselves a really good pair of Bose noise-canceling headphones. <laughs> Put them on, play your favorite music, and cut out everything else extraneous that you're hearing. Because what people say during a campaign may have no relevance to how they're forced to govern. It's definitely true that a lot of people, prime ministers, presidents, are defined by the events that happen on their watch. Tony Blair, for example, ended up looking at the whole world through the prism of Kosovo, which completely changed his perspective and I think was the template which led him to support the Iraq war and to do a lot of the big things that happened. Obviously, 9-11 was a transformative event for, for, George, uh, for George Bush uh, and um, uh, David Cameron was very much um, affected by by the Libyan uh, crisis. But at the same time, you can tell some of the instincts um, which people will bring to bear when when bad things happen or good things happen to them. Um, You've, as you said, you've covered a lot of presidents over the years. You've been White House correspondent. You've seen people move from being uh, campaigners to being uh, commanders-in-chief. What do you think um, we can guess from what we've seen of of Donald Trump so far that he might bring into office and that might shape some of his reactions to to the big things which will inevitably uh, define what a Trump foreign policy will look like? It's a little hard to tell because we're missing two things that we know about most candidates. First is, for most candidates, we know which establishment advisors they rely on and what the views of those advisors are, even if the president ultimately doesn't take the advice. We knew it for George Bush. We knew it largely for Barack Obama from the Democratic establishment. The establishment has pretty well abandoned Donald Trump. So we don't know which influences are coming in on him. And what worries some people is he seems to be a little more in the thrall of military advisors than, say, diplomats. And I've asked him about this before, and he just says, well, you know, military is very important. Our military is so weak. Well, our military is stronger than the next seven or eight countries combined, but 
this perception of weakness plays into the Make America Great Again phrase. The second thing that we don't know uh, about him is what he will discover about the limits of American power. There is this popular image that the American president sitting in the Oval Office is all-powerful, barks commands, and things happen. In fact, American presidents sit in the Oval Office, bark commands, and a bureaucracy can slow them down. Now, there are some areas in which they have unilateral power, and military is one of them. But I wouldn't overestimate at this point what the powers of an American president would be. And certainly the second-term president is often very different from the first-term president, including some of the most well, revolutionary... George W. Presidents. Bush was a great example. Yeah. He denies it, but his second term was almost the complete opposite of his first. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, absolutely fascinating. So we'll see what happens uh, in November and if we actually have to live in this world that you've described. We'll come back and talk <laughs> about it again. So that's how David Sanger thinks that Donald Trump will deal with the world. And one of the first sets of relationships he's going to have to deal with is how the US relates to Russia and Iran, this unlikely couple that are developing a common approach to Syria in support of the, the Assad regime. It's a couple who have been very much in the spotlight following the, the breakdown of the ceasefire in Aleppo. Why don't we start with uh, what's happened this week where UN officials have, have condemned Syria's Aleppo bombardment as, as being barbaric. Looking at the photos and footage from Aleppo, this is um, disastrous. And I'm still a little bit wondering why um, Russia is doing what it is doing because the peace deal that was agreed beforehand actually corresponds to Russia's interests. It gives Russia everything it, it needs. Uh, but possibly they think that there is nothing to lose by going ahead even more, taking Aleppo, and then any future negotiations will have to take place even more in, in Russia's terms. And of course, that is something that, coming to the paper, binds Russia and Iran. Uh, trying to create uh, as favorable as possible conditions for uh, Assad to resume power and to rule over as much of Syria as, as possible. But Eli uh, is, is clearly uh, better informed about the Middle Eastern nuances and using the occasion I want to express my gratitude to Eli <laughs> for having tracked me into these things because my career has focused on Russia-West relations, and thanks to our MENA program, I'm, I'm now looking at Russia's actions in the Middle East, and that is a whole new, different world for me. So, Ellie, you've been looking at Iran's approach to the world through lots of different uh, crises. We've, we've talked a lot about the nuclear crisis in the past, about some of the regional conflicts, but this is quite surprising, the extent to which Russia and Iran are working together to support the Assad regime. Do you want to give a bit of, of, of history and context about how, how this relationship is built up? Because it's becoming one of the unlikely alliances in, in the region. Yeah, sure, Mark. Well, in August, uh, both of uh, these parties took the world's attention when, for the first time really since World War II, their military relations heightened to a new level of 
Russian jets uh, sourced from Iran, an Iranian air base, going into Aleppo. This was the first time that the Islamic Republic, since its revolution, has allowed a superpower, a P5 member, to use its air bases for military operations. So this became not only an international issue, but also a very heated domestic debate inside Iran because of its uh, tense history, uh, not only with the United States, but also with Russia, um, going back to troops being placed in Iran after World War II, and also a series of setbacks and fluctuations in their relationships, uh, even since the Islamic Republic. Um, but really, I mean, uh, just to touch back on uh, the, the point about the Aleppo ceasefire breaking down, I think, unfortunately, when the ceasefire was announced by uh, Lavrov and Kerry, um, many people knew that it would inevitably break down at some point. However, it clearly deteriorated much faster than anticipated. Um, everyone thought that it was actually a pause in, in the violence for both sides to rearm and recoup their forces. Um, the Russians and the Iranians and the Syrians have, um, since the breakdown of the ceasefire, actually blamed um, the, the Western anti-ISIS coalition, per se, uh, for uh, breaking down the ceasefire because of the attacks on the Syrian army um, last Saturday, in which 60 to 80 members, roughly, of the Syrian army were, were killed, and, and Russia and Iran are blaming um, what is seen to be an accidental um, attack from uh, the US and certain other Western uh, forces um, on the Syrian army. So again, the deterioration has been um, much more quick than people expected, and Aleppo is under a huge amount of bombardment, uh, more than uh, it has been in the last uh, few months. And really, I mean, uh, what I see happening here is something that perhaps was predicted even months ago, is uh, Russia and Iran ensuring that President Assad, was what they see as the legitimate government of Syria, has the upper hand before any sort of peace talks um, can start. And this, again, is something that Kadri alluded to, is really part of their world vision to ensure that there is no external regime change put in motion in Syria. Uh, they want to have a stake in, in, the, in the world order and the regional order, and that's one of the most important things that's binding them together in, in this Syrian context. So how much do you think there is a an overlap between Russian and Iranian interest, Kadri? Because at the time when Russia started stepping up its involvement in Syria, people saw a lot of tactical uh, overlap. You know, Iran had troops on the ground that through Hezbollah and through its own kind of action. Russia could do the air bit. Neither side liked the idea of external Western-sponsored regime change. Both sides have a history of at least slightly complex relations with the US and with the West, so getting one over on, on the West was obviously a, an attractive uh, principle. But at the same time, uh, they there are also big differences in, in their kind of uh, interests. And at the beginning, people thought that Putin would want to go in and out relatively quickly as well. And in fact, I think you were arguing that, that he didn't want to have another Afghanistan on his hands. They clearly did not, and I restate I have been wondering whether they um, still uh, think it's clear and quick, or are they sort of resigning to a longer war? Uh, but uh, with Iran, yes, everyone in Moscow would stress that this is circumstantial alliance. Uh, there are certain interests that coincide, 
but there are also lots of differences. Even the degree of support to Assad. For Iran, that is near absolute, as I understand, whereas Russia, Russians keep saying that they want to preserve the state and, and they see the regime as the key to preserving the state. Assad is valuable as, as a key to preserving the regime, but if it looks like the regime could survive better with someone else uh, in leadership position, then they could also help to arrange exit of Assad. Main thing for Russia is exactly that the exit mm -hmm. is dignified, that it doesn't take the shape of Western-inspired regime change. This is something that is, that is taboo for Russians. Iranians see it a little bit differently, and there are many, many other differences. Uh, Russia, so what, what the, do you think the main ones are? Because oh, on that, maybe take this one first, because Ellie, we've done yeah. lots of events um, with Iranian ministers and with people involved in the regime, and they'll use similar language to the language that Kadri just used, that, you know, they're not uh, aligned with Assad per se forever, but that they think that, um, uh, you know, that, that it's important that the uh, Syrians should decide who's in charge of the country. So they often talk about elections, but they say that if, if, if he lost an election, that they would be willing to, to deal with someone else. Or, or if, uh, if, if there was another kind of stable, dignified way of moving forward, that it's not him per se, it's more the danger of chaos, which, they, which they're worried about. Yeah, I think uh, probably Moscow and Tehran are facing the same problem, is that they can't replace Assad at the moment. Uh, with an alternative. Maybe two, three years ago, they were trying to pitch with different opposition groups to look at if there was a viable alternative. But now, truly, I think even even within Iran that used to have some sort of debate about Assad, now, precisely because of the issue of uh, more jihadi extremist groups in Syria taking um, hold of the opposition forces on the ground, and they really don't see an alternative to Assad's um, position in Damascus. Now, I think what you've seen from Iran, and I think what would also be amenable to the Russian view, is a sort of decentralization of this of the power in Damascus, so that the president's role is no longer as important as it is today, but that there is some sort of a devolution of power downwards. And that's certainly something that ECFR, we've been talking about and arguing for some time, and I think if if they can if they can hold on to the regime apparatus, uh, the security apparatus and the state apparatus, and have the Assad question put to the side for the time being, I think there is space, uh, particularly also for the West to engage both the uh, both the Russians and the Iranians on this Assad question so once there is the escalation of the violence. So so far you talked about. Stuff which the two sides have in common rather than things which mm. divide them. But what, what are the main strategic divergences? No, I think degree of support to Assad seems still to diverge to me a little bit. But also, I mean, take the question of Israel, for example. Russia is trying to maintain a decent relationship with Israel and they, uh, they invest in clarifying their positions, meeting Israelis and so forth. Iran quite clearly doesn't do it. And Israel, one of the main worries of Israel is exactly that, that Iran will use its position in Syria against Israel and Russia. That actually makes Russia to hesitate about its relationship with Iran. We um, investigated a little bit also the more practical sides of the relationship, economic cooperation, arms trade. And 
what I heard from all my Russian interlocutors was that yes, Iran as an arms market is sort of lucrative. Okay, it's not the top market, probably never going to be because of financial circumstances in Iran and so forth. And there are other bigger, better markets, but still. But the question is, where will these arms end up? If they end up with Hezbollah acting against Israel, then that will drag Russia into the sorts of conflicts where Russia doesn't want to be. So, you know, Russia sees itself as a big power and it wants to be active again in the Middle East. And it, for that, and it needs to have relations with many local actors. I think Iran's agenda is, is somewhat more limited or, or differently focused, but Ellie can talk more about that. But interestingly, on the arms issue, actually, um, it's almost the inverse for Iran that the security and defense establishment in Iran argue that Moscow is critical uh, to the lifeline of Iran's defense and security architecture, precisely because since the 1979 revolution, Russia overtook the US and many Western states as being the main arms supplier to Iran. And at this particular time, both given the Syria context and the unprecedented threats in the region, uh, the security establishment in Iran is arguing that a, a, a tilt towards Russia is necessary to maintain Iran's defense structures. So at the beginning of the rapprochement between Tehran and Moscow, lots of people in the West were saying, okay, what we need to do is to find wedge issues between the two countries, that there are kind of differences, that, um, yeah, Moscow depends more on Assad, whereas Iran has got Hezbollah and has got its own, has got kind of works with, with militia and other kinds of things on, on the ground, that um, that there are these re- these bigger kind of regional things. But you two seem to be pretty sceptical about the idea of, of driving a wedge between uh, Tehran and Moscow. Well, I think part of it is that actually... Every time in the last year when Russia's military intervention has really come on the scene that the Westerners, the Western powers have tried to wedge a divide or increase pressure on the ground in Syria, actually it's tied the two groups uh, together. It's tied the IRGC fighting on the ground much more closely coordinated with um, Syrian and Russian air cover uh, for their operations, whether it's in Aleppo or in Khantaman or elsewhere. And so I think that part of the problem here is that a lot of those wedge issues that uh, the Europeans are looking at are more longer term issues that are only going to surface once you get the political track. And so there's no use trying to bring up, for example, the militia card or the Kurdish card necessarily now when both parties are focused on what's happening on the ground and having the upper hand. And what we're saying is you need to engage both of them. If you want to have some sort of a delivery on a de-escalation or even further down the line on a political transition on Assad, um, stop just engaging uh, Russia, uh, for example, in the same way that you did on the nuclear issue where you tried to veg a divide between it and Iran. But on this issue, you need to look at it differently and approach both of them through an engagement lens on, on the political track. So how would that work? Um, we have argued that um, Europe should try to use its limited leverage, and it's it's really limited. So we have bad cards uh, that we need to play well. Uh, but I think at least Russia wants to have um, a deal on Syria that is legitimized by the West. And there we might have some room for maneuver. And I think the aim should be to... Um, 
try to foster some sort of transition in the future. I mean, we, it's, it's clear that we don't manage to bring the democratic opposition to power now. That's, that train is gone, let's, let's face it. So the best we can do is to try to think of, of future arrangements and try to lay ground to some positive developments in the future. It is bleak because we are used to thinking of ourselves as big and powerful who can fix the world's problems before the next elections uh, come up. That's not one of those cases. And on maybe the Iran side, I can add that, you know, this is a very unique opportunity for Europe in this moment um, when there is some sort of a diplomatic momentum after the nuclear deal with Iran. And at a time when really U.S.-Iran relations, given the change in Washington, D.C., imminent changes uh, to the U.S. administration, there is going to be a window of opportunity for Europeans to act in terms of using their political leverage, using their bargaining economic chips with Iran to try and draw them into a more um, more constructive, more engagement kind of platform on, on the regional security issue. And it's really selling the case that, look, this is the Middle East is a region that's affecting Iran as much as it's affecting Europe, and it's in both sides' interest to try and de-escalate the conflict. And I think that's where really the entry point has to be, rather than the very you know hardline, uh, one-way, zero-sum attitude of Assad must go. Um, you need to try and draw Iran into the engage, uh, into the conversation as much as Moscow. And why would, as maybe as a last question, um, why would either Moscow or Tehran be interested in a de-escalation. I mean, at the moment, the war is not harming either Iran or Russia very much to the extent that it's creating refugees. They seem to be headed towards Turkey or the European Union or Jordan rather than uh, uh, towards Moscow and Tehran. Um, and Assad's uh, position is much stronger now than it was earlier. It doesn't look like he's in imminent uh, danger of, of being forced out. And uh, both Moscow and Tehran have got a fair amount of control over what's happening in the country. It's not as if either are being shut out. What? Why would they have an interest in... Uh, moving towards a de-escalation. And, and you both talked in slightly cryptical terms about Europe's limited leverage over the two sides. Maybe you could spell out what kind of leverage it does actually have. I can, I can speak from um, Russia's perspective. And my view has been, I may be right, I may be wrong, of course, but my view has been that Russia is trying to set some sort of model in Syria to show how such situations should be resolved. Uh, it's not sort of Western-inspired regime change and democracy that in Russia's eyes only creates chaos, but you need to support the strongman and, and take it from there. Um, so I think they want a solution that is legitimized by the West. They, they need the West to acknowledge that, yes, Russia, you did well. That, that is the way how we can do it. And I think resentment we, we could use. Also, another thing, Russia tends to be, sadly, blind about societies. They don't understand society's power. They are very sort of great power country, leadership-focused. 
but they understand it better in the Middle East, where societies are framed as national minorities, religious minorities, so forth, or majorities. Um, and and there you could argue that you know you need these other groups to have a stake in in the country, otherwise it's not sustainable. It's funny that in the Ukrainian context, Moscow would not understand it. In Syrian context, it probably might. So these sorts of arguments could could be used, but still, it is it is limited leverage, and there are there are many counter pressures. Uh, on my side, well, I think Europe has to think very carefully about its own position. It's, it's in a very different position than it is, for example, for the United States. It is having a, the Syrian crisis for Europe is having huge internal implications. And European member states are going to have two choices. Either they're going to, particularly after, in, in light of what's happened in Aleppo, they are going to escalate, counter-escalate against what Russia, Iran and the Syrian army is doing. They're going to rearm the opposition, which at best can now be called the mainstream rather than the moderate opposition, in my opinion. Uh, they can uh, contribute towards further violence and retaliation on that front. Or they can basically accept that, unfortunately, as as Kendry put it, we have missed the boat on certain opportunities, and and really now it's about uh, trying at best is what Ban Ki Moon has been saying at the UN this week is to try and end the suffering for the Syrian people and also end the repercussions that this war is but having. That's exactly on what they were trying to do with the ceasefire. And yeah, that didn't no, 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 that's so true. Well. But I mean, th- th- that's very true. And uh, as I said, the, the 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 terms of the ceasefire. I mean, obviously they were not made public, but as I understand, they were on shaky grounds to begin with. Um, and obviously the, the, the most devastating part about that was that the UN humanitarian relief efforts were not able to achieve any of their objectives. Um, and much more needs to be done about that. But I think there is there is a... There, you need to look for a light at the end of the tunnel. And I think that if you look at the costs that this war has imposed on Iran, they have been substantive. Um, the amount of generals and senior um, IRGC members that have been killed in the last year have been uh, substantive in numbers and in, in, in ranks. And so I don't think that the IRGC is looking at a, at a 10, 15 year war on this. There are pragmatic elements within the IRGC that will be pro a de-escalation model if the right pattern is, is presented to them. And also if they see that the other side, namely the US, is delivering on its side. Now it's a very, very difficult situation and this conflict is going to have its uh, its ups and downs and clearly we've, we've hit, hit quite relatively rock bottom at the moment. Um, but also look at the other power faction in Iran at the moment, which is uh, the other face of Iran, not the IRGC, but the Rouhani and the Zarif camp, that is through the nuclear deal trying to show that there can be positive dividends for Iran by negotiating and settling on, on global crises issues with the West. And I think one way for Europe to show that leverage is to show that that deal is working and it has been to Iran's benefit. And so other deals can be cut with that power function that delivers uh, interest it delivers on the interests of the entire um, establishment in Iran and one of these issues could be regional security okay well we're gonna keep talking about Syria in this podcast and I'm sure we'll come back with that probably with the two of you and some others many times over the next period because uh, much as I like to think that your policy conclusions will have an immediate effect on the ground in um... longer term <laughs> 
I'm not sure that uh, that it will work in this podcast cycle. Um, but uh, that brings this uh, fascinating discussion to an end. I would like to say goodbye from Ellie Garamaya, Kadri Leek, David Sanger, who I spoke to earlier from uh, outside New York, and myself, Mark Leonard, the editor of ECFR's podcast is Katarina Botel-Atinaro and our researcher is Ulrika Franco.